Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Wonderful. I'm going to open our, our time just with a, with a reading from, from Scripture. Matthew 5, verse 27 to 32 says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye has caused you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, if it's your first time at City Collective, great Sunday to be in church. Um, it's a difficult text. And uh, it's funny, we, we plan out the year well ahead of time of what passages we're going to be dealing with when. And this was not one that I had circled with, with a ton of like enthusiasm and excitement. But I will say that... Uh, I do believe that this text is incredibly important for us to consider because relationships on this level require our full attention. And so before we get into anything, I, I want to say this. For far too long, and perhaps in your experience as well, the church has treated conversations around sexual desire or uh, sexual lust with a black and white perspective. There hasn't been any, any understanding or nuance or question provided to it. And when I look at the text that Jesus provides, I think he is passionate about the things that we're going to talk about with a deep understanding of what it means to be human alongside. His goal is never shame or guilt or condemnation. His goal is always freedom, healing, and flourishing. But this text is hard. So we're going to engage with it together. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly in this Sermon on the Mount as we lead into Easter. And uh, there are sections of Jesus' teaching where he really gets into our business. And this is one of them. In, in a Sunday context, we're pretty limited in what we're able to, to fully tackle. But if you're like me, these conversations of, of, of lust, of divorce, of sexual sin, of pornography, all of these have kind of been associated with guilt, and like I said, that isn't the end goal that Jesus is pursuing. So I want you to keep that at the forefront of your mind as we're talking, and I want you to remember this, that when we're diving into the teachings of Jesus, let's not forget the one who is delivering those teachings. 
Okay, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for uh, the opportunity to be together for the way that you lead us to these spaces and these places and wherever we find ourselves this morning, I pray that there is protection upon our hearts, that there is no, no foothold or any space for anything that is not of you to come into this conversation. But let it be reflective of your heart for people, for your creation, and for the design that you set in place from the very beginning. May we, may we discover that together and feel your nearness in the midst of it. Give clarity and cohesiveness to my words this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So here in Matthew, Jesus has been announcing the arrival of the kingdom, of the rule and the reign of God, and that's the whole story of how God is, is trying to reclaim the world as his own to take it from a place of what it is to a place of what he desires it to be. And so Jesus, in this place of new rule and new reign and new, new humanity, he's starting with leading us to this place of what would be upside-down values in perspective of culture. Jesus is teaching the good news of the kingdom, that this is what life in the kingdom looks like when his disciples actually follow him and rediscover their humanity. And so the approach that he takes is that he begins to quote the scriptures and he says, I'm not here to undermine Israel's scriptures, I'm here to fulfill them. And what I'm here to do is to create a kingdom in whom the purpose of all of God's commands comes into their fulfillment. And so he quotes these, these moments out of the Old Testament, these famous Ten Commandments, and he goes, this is what is said, and then he lays out a teaching about what it is. He's not looking to reject it, but as a new teaching that calls us to something that's even more radical than the original command. There's a couple things I want us to remember before we really break down the text. Number one, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, much of which would have had the entire uh, Torah at least exposed to on an annual basis, if not memorized. So for him to relay and communicate uh, an idea or a thought from the Old Testament, there would have been a litany of ideas that would have immediately come out of that conversation for those who are listening that we don't immediately have that context to. When we hear, do not commit adultery, we do not, do not commit murder, these Old Testament commandments, for those within that culture and time, it would have provided way more for them to think about and understand. And Jesus isn't saying that those things are bad or outdated. He's just saying they are what it is. He says, you've heard it said, and then I tell you on repeat throughout this section. He says, do not commit murder. I tell you it's about anger and contempt. He says, do not break your oath. I want you to speak truthfully always. Do not commit revenge. I want you to love your enemies, actually. And then today, do not commit adultery. But what is it when we actually have a lustful look? Jesus is inviting us to look beneath the surface. And he wants us to, to avoid this compulsion that we could have to allow the magnitude of the action, a word like adultery that carries so much weight, 
to not allow the magnitude of the action blind us from the reality of the root. Jesus is not satisfied with surface-level change. He doesn't want to just change your actions. He wants to change our hearts. I don't want you to just murder, I don't want you to not murder people. I want to heal you of the anger that boils beneath the surface. I don't want you to just keep your word. I want you to be a truth teller. I don't want you to just avoid revenge. I want you to love your enemy actively. Being part of the kingdom is not just modifying behavior. It's about getting to the root issues of our lives. And so we get to this, the, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. And it feels pretty clear. And, and even in perspective of what we talked about last week, do not commit murder, I know my initial feeling is like, okay, yeah, I, I can do that. No murder, no adultery. I think I can do that. But here's the thing. Adultery doesn't happen with the desire to blow up a family. It doesn't start at the wedding, wedding altar. It often comes from a place of, of pain, of, of loneliness, of addiction, of trauma, and so many other things. And this is by no means me saying something to justify it. But it's so important for us to understand the complexity of the issue because Jesus certainly does. Adultery may be defined by the action, but it begins far before. When Jesus recounts the laws from the Torah, he doesn't simply address the behavior. He's looking to get to the heart of the sin. And he wants us to see this. The ways in which our unseen practices impact others are beyond what we think. Our weaknesses of lust actually create a wake of objectification and oppression in the lives of others. Jesus is calling us to drastic measures to eradicate the poison of lust from our lives. And I purposely use this heavy language because Jesus is clearly passionate about this. His language and his passion around the topic, in fact, feels or maybe even seems extreme. It almost seems unattainable. To, to look at someone is to commit adultery? Do you not see the, the, the world in which we live, Jesus? There's a couple important pieces to understand about what Jesus is actually trying to get at. First of all, Jesus is not talking about an appreciation of beauty. There is good-looking people everywhere. This is not saying to recognize someone as attractive is to commit adultery. This is not what Jesus is saying. But far too often we've taken it to this extreme. But if we look at Genesis chapter 1, God saw all that he made, the mountains and the oceans, and he called them good. And then he looked at humanity and he called it very good. To find people attractive is normal. Jesus isn't trying to vilify 
or characterize sexual desire or the human body as wrong or evil. This is not the problem. The Song of Songs, which I feel like every preacher will reference at some point in a lust conversation, uh, is, is right there in the middle of the text. And it's interesting that Jesus, as, as a Jewish reader, as a Jewish uh, participants in the culture would have annually heard this text rid, uh, spoken out in the synagogue. Think about this. Every single year, Jesus is hearing this love, sometimes erotic poem read out in the synagogue as part of a normal understanding of this is how God sees humanity. So Jesus is not looking to vilify sexual desire or the human body. That is not his approach. That is not his upbringing. It's not, it's not his, his lens in which he's looking to approach it through. Jesus is the embodiment of the creator who created you and I. And he said it was very good. The second thing is, Jesus is not talking about a momentary flash of sexual desire. And this is an important distinction to make. There's a difference between sin and temptation. There's a difference between action and temptation. At a neurobiological level, we feel desire take place. This can be temptation. And we can't control it. But we can influence it. And you can have your say in temptation. But again, this isn't what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is saying very specifically is even seen in the language that he uses. The English translation of this idea of look is a probably a poor translation of what's actually taking place. Because we could think about it in some of the ways we've, we've already discussed. Oh, if I just glance at someone, or if I see something, immediately I've committed adultery in my heart. That's not what Jesus is saying. The translation that probably better helps us understand it is that he's speaking about a gaze or to stare in a way that is meant for personal satisfaction. This is awkward. This feels weird. But what Jesus is trying to do is Jesus is trying to get upstream from adultery. He's saying, I want to get to the source of what causes it before the action takes place. So what is Jesus actually talking about? Jesus is talking about lust. In the Greek, lust, it means to long for something and to take it for yourself. And lust says, I might have that, I must have that thing for myself, specifically in this area of temptation. I must have that thing which is not my own, and I need to make it for myself. That is what lust says. Dallas Willard, when he talks about this text, he says that anyone who looks upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her, using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. Eugene Peterson, he paraphrases this in the message, and he says, you know the next commandment pretty well, too. Don't go to bed with another spouse, but don't think that you've preserved your virtue by simply staying out of bed. 
Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those ugly looks you think nobody noticed, they are also corrupt. See what Jesus is getting at. It's not the first look. It's the second. It's the third. It's the fourth. It's the imagination that begins to be sparked out of it. And then rather than overriding our desire for lust, we, we give into it. We give into that overwhelming feeling and we, we make the mistake of cultivating it, of, of rooting ourselves in it. And if you've ever been the perpetrator or the victim of such a look, you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Uh, it's been a, a, probably a couple of years, maybe a year and a half now, that we had a conversation around church history. And we talked about some of the ways in which Christianity began to really separate itself with the teachings and the doctrines of Jesus, and two in particular came to the forefront. One was the Imago Dei, and one was the love ethic. The Imago Dei is a primary doctrine and a definitive feature of the Christian faith. And it is this idea that all people are made in the image of God. Every person, regardless of appearance, IQ, competencies, opinions, religious affiliations, all people are made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis, he articulates this by saying that the closest you'll ever be to the likeness of God is the person sitting next to you on the bus. And so this idea should sit at the core of everything we do as followers of Jesus. Therefore, an oppression of people that wishes to diminish their humanity in any way, whether it's racism, slavery, narcissism, adultery, lustful looks, those should be opposed and condemned. That which is dehumanizing reduces human image bearers of God to objects. Lust takes that which God bestows with the highest value and reduces it to a commodity for personal consumption. No wonder Jesus is heated. No wonder Jesus is fiery about how we should respond. Because he has this vision for human existence. You have to hear who Jesus is and the words that he's communicating. He is fighting for your flourishing. He wants to see the relationships of your life and of my life flourish. And his heart breaks in the ways in which we have begun to move in a direction that is outside of his intention. Because he sees what happens when we go down that path. No wonder Jesus is heated. In Matthew chapter 22, he provides the love ethic where he says, love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your mind. And the second one he throws in for fun is love your neighbor as yourself. This love ethic, this imagio day, he sit at the core of the kingdom that he's looking to introduce into the world. And he sees the ways in which humanity has actually operated outside of those doctrines and those ideas and has caused all to move in a direction that is away from his intention. 
to lust is to actually oppress the image of God. And it might seem like heavy-handed language, but it's because lust runs in complete opposition to love. We, we have this cultural confusion between lust and love, and we forget sometimes that the two are very, very different. If you read the poem out of 1 Corinthians, that is the definition of love in the New Testament, John Mark Homer, he, he articulates it along the lines of what's the first thing on the line in 1 Corinthians 13? It says that love is what? Love is, love is patient. It's not in a rush. Lust is always in a rush. It doesn't want to wait till the next time that you see each other, much less wait for marriage. It is what it wants, what it wants, when it wants it. Love, love is faithful, and it's fine to wait because it's in it for the long haul until death do us part, while lust is all about the short term. It's about the next emotional high or next sexual experience, encounter that's taking place. It, this is what the difference is between the two. They run in opposition to each other. Love is selfless, while lust is selfish. It's narcissism that twists our sexual desires inwards. Love is an act of will where you make a decision that I'm going to pursue someone with all of my being. I'm going to give generously of who I am because I see who they are and I can't imagine myself not giving to my whole being to them. Love is that act of will while lust is what happens when our will is drowned out by our primal desires. And then we see the way in which the world has equated culture's idea of love and lust. We look at movies and they'll say like, oh, I, I love you. And then you're like, this, the next scene is they're, they're sleeping together. Yeah, I was just, I wanted to sleep with you. That was that, that's the equa equation that's being formulated. But if the two things that sit at the core of the kingdom, the way in which Jesus is inviting his followers to live and experience the fullness of life together is the Imago Dei, the image of God being within each and every person, and the love ethic that we need to love our neighbor, not lust after our neighbor, but love our neighbor with the selfless, patient, will-driven approach, no wonder Jesus is fiery. And he uses pretty intense language about how we should respond. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And we're kind of left with this question of like, okay... How do we reconcile the intensity of Jesus' teaching with the commonality of lust in our culture? Everybody should be blind by, by this kind of precedent to some degree. It, it almost feels impossible because everywhere we go, there are opportunities for temptation and we're all flawed, broken people that are in need of a Savior and we've all fallen short. The, the, the lie of modern culture is to follow your heart. This is the first time in human history that not even within a Christian context, but in our Western culture where we have treated all desire as good. There's no wisdom in our approach of what is good and what is not. 
So is Jesus being literal here? No. If he was and lust was the problem, cutting off someone's arm and gouging out someone's eye is not that solution. He's using hyperbole to make a very important point. He's asking the question, is what you are engaged in leading your life to flourish? And if not, and if you feel a conviction in your heart, you need to move away from that which is broken in your life and don't be afraid to take radical measures. Now here's something I found really interesting. When we read this text, does Jesus actually command us not to lust? No. Jesus actually approaches this text more like a doctor than a judge. He's seeing the final action, the final results. And he's providing a diagnosis of the human heart so that we don't get sucked into the vicious cycle of lust that leads to actions like adultery. And this, this isn't a theological doctrine of eternity that's being laid out. Sometimes we have this aversion to this, uh, this idea of hell that's presented in moments like these. We see it thrown into hell. It feels like very violent language, and we get these image, images that pop into our head that are more Hellenistic, that they're based out of this idea of a fiery pit in which it's like Dante's Inferno, where people are falling in. This isn't what Jesus is trying to indicate in this moment. He's speaking about the manner in which when we all experience this, when the relationships in our life actually begin to decay and fall apart, there is an element of hell on earth that we begin to experience. Brokenness and hurt, guilt and shame. These things begin to, to pile into our lives and we fall actually away from being in the presence of God, if you were to think about hell in any sense, it is to be outside and away from the presence of God because the presence of God is where you discover freedom. And if we're not feeling freedom, we're walking a path that is actually outside of his presence and not in the desire that he wants for us. We, we need to hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't look at that. Don't look at just the final action of, of, of adultery or whatever sexual sin is there. Look at this. Look at where your heart is right now. When has our look become a stare? And when has our decision become we want to consume something or someone that we've now chosen to objectify. And if we have gotten to that point, then radical measures need to be taken. It has to mean, on a practical sense, a, a higher level of self-awareness of where we are actually at as individuals. Because here's the thing, I'm not here this morning to tell you what you can or cannot watch. That's not up to me. It's not my responsibility to make that decision for you, what you can or cannot watch. And, and in reality, some of the things that you might be able to consume, whether it's media or movies, might be different than what I'm able to. 
We're all, we're all different in, in where we are in our journeys. It's the things we've consumed in the past, addictions that we hold, different spaces that we might find ourselves in. That's not, the goal is not to set a, a, a rule book before us of what we can or cannot look at. But we have to have a self-awareness of what are the things that we are consuming doing to our hearts and leading us towards. What is it numbing? What is it forming? What is it creating? Maybe it means that sometimes we do need to walk out of that movie. We do need to, to delete that app. We need to end that relationship. Or we need to invite accountability in and tell someone about what's going on in our lives. We need to take that which might feel abstract and we think to ourselves is so individualistic and I'm just thinking about it by myself, but it's actually leading us down a path that is not freedom by, by any measure. But we have to have an intentionality to it. There is a formative power to the images that we consume. There's no question that we are saying that from a Christian perspective, but science proves that as well. Even with, with young children, what, the things that they see and are exposed to are the things that they relay and they communicate. How much more so is that for us in our developed human brains? We need to have a sense of awareness of what's actually taking place. The millennials are the first generation where we're actually seeing studies come out upon, of the impact of social media upon a group of people. The things that we consume for the first time are so inundated with high-end images on a daily basis at a high, high frequency, and it's doing something to us neurologically and scientifically that we know is kind of taking place when we are consuming it all on our own. And science itself is saying, we are not better now than we were before. Anxiety and depression have risen to all-time highs, part in response to the rise of social media and to the manner in which we have consumed imagery. Like I said, I'm not here to tell you what you can or cannot look at. There needs to be a self-awareness that we learn to carry. But I'm wanting us to move towards a deeper sense of motivation in the midst of what we do. Sexual desire is not bad, but it can become a monster that consumes and ruins relationships. And here's the elephant in the room. And so let's move right towards it. In modern Western culture, uh, Tim Mackey, he, he articulates it as, it's like asking a fish to look at the murky water that it is swimming in, that we don't even see it anymore. We live in a culture that has made a huge percentage of our nation's economy, multi-billion dollar industry, whose sole purpose is to lure human beings into degrading themselves and their own humanity. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about pornography. Pornography is a pandemic. It is a mental and relational health crisis. This is not a Christian idea. This is a medical fact. This is what we see taking place. We have consistent peer-reviewed research that shows how consistently damaging pornography is for individuals in communities and for the world. Studies have shown that the frequency of porn consumption correlates with depression, anxiety, stress, and social problems. 
Porn consumption has been found to influence some consumer social pre uh, sexual preferences, leaving them wanting what they've seen on a screen, and as a result, significantly less satisfied with sex in real life. Did you catch that? Pornography is destroying the very thing that it is claiming to fulfill, sexual desire. After being exposed to pornography, those report being less satisfied with their partner's physical appearance. Some of the effects of pornography lead to an increased negative attitude towards, towards women, to, to decreased empathy for victims of sexual violence, and an increase in a dominant behavior towards others. The Department of Justice and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children recognize that pornography is if not the main, one of the main elements that adds to the serious problem of sex trafficking in our modern era. This is the action that Jesus is trying to get upstream of. He sees the ways in which our sexual desires can become a monster that perverts our whole economy of our culture. And it becomes so normalized that we don't even see it as something else. Pornography is a mirage in a desert of loneliness. And it doesn't provide the water that you long for in your thirst, but it gives you a false feeling of it. There is no satisfaction or enjoyment. Rather, it pulls us deeper and deeper into a life of pain and darkness. It's a drug that promises relief from something, whether it's longing, loneliness, boredom, overwhelming thoughts, but it actually creates a greater need within us. I have had to deal with it in my own life. My late teens, my early 20s, I have had to have honest, hard conversations about the manner in which it gained a foothold in my life. And the conversations that I had to then have with my, my now wife about the struggle that I had to face that I had to continue to hold myself accountable to. And understanding that there were repercussions in the midst of that. It is a mirage in a desert of loneliness. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't leave us there. Because he isn't pursuing guilt and shame, he's engaging us in a difficult topic for the purpose of freedom and healing. Pornography, lustful looks, fantasizing, all these things have been made out to be individual things, and therefore we often treat them individually, but there is an accountability that we can invite into it. To a degree, there's actually even a flow of thought that we see taking place going from this idea of lust to divorce. Let me say this quick before continuing. Uh, divorce has been a controversial topic within the church over the last century. This text in particular has been misused, in my opinion, of what Jesus is actually trying to say. He's far more pointed in his remarks around divorce and marriage later in Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. He talks about it um, far more intently. This text has been used as a means of understanding why people should get divorced. It is not the purpose. This is not what Jesus is trying to say in this text. 
There are real life situations where we have to consider real life variables, whether it is abuse, addiction, adultery, abandonment. There are different real reasons in which Jesus actually would invite us to consider the breaking of that, that relationship for the health of both parties. This is the heart of God. What Jesus is saying, though, in this passage is a rebuttal and a response to the culture of the day. It's actually a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24, in which Moses actually articulates for the Israelites a manner in which they should respond to this idea of divorce around sexual immorality. Within the Far East culture, in, the, in ancient Babylonian, Babylonian law, whenever divorce took place, what actually happened it was the woman was still available for the man to then come and reclaim almost like a piece of property within five years. This was the response of Moses in the midst of that, that this is a divorce certificate in which there can be a separation so that they can move on to future relationships. This is very specifically what Jesus is speaking to. What had happened a century before the arrival of Jesus on the scene is that within the Jewish culture, there had become a, a, a new idea that had moved its way to the forefront. There was a rabbi that had gained notoriety within the region, and he had moved. There's a, there's a statement within Deuteronomy chapter 24 which says, for certain reasons. And often that was understood as sexual immorality. But this rabbi had then moved it to his place of any reason at all. And this had gained a little bit of traction within that community. And when I say any reason at all, and I'm not saying this, saying this to, to poke fun, it was, I don't like her cooking, uh, I don't find her attractive anymore, she made me mad yesterday, like this was it, was, it was to that point. It was this extreme within the culture. So Jesus actually making this statement is a direct response to what was taking place in the culture at the time. This was not meant to be the reason why divorce was allowed. It was meant to be a specific rebuttal. Because what, what is Jesus actually moving towards here? What we have seen over and over again throughout human history is that there is an oppression that takes place when sexual desire is left unchecked. And it is the oppression of women throughout human history. And hear me when I say this, I'm not saying women cannot handle themselves, are not strong. I have been blessed with strong, meaningful relationships with women in my life, within my family and outside that I am grateful for. I, when I look at my daughter, I'm a proud girl that I think that she can do anything that she wants and she can't even walk. Amen. But human history shows us that unfortunately, the oppression of women has been propagated over and over again. And unfortunately, it continues today. And often it is done under the guise of sexual desire. This is what Jesus is speaking to. He is saying that one of the horrific things that's taking place is the oppression of women, and it was taking place under the guise of divorce. 
and this oppression that is seen in glances of adultery and in the paperwork of divorce is why we see these two passages next to each other. Jesus is coming after lust, and he's coming after an easy divorce culture, both of which are real and relevant things for us today. Now, my worship team, you can join me at the front. Remember at the beginning I said we cannot separate the one communicating the teaching from the teaching itself. And what I mean by that is that you can't take Jesus' words and teachings and separate them from his heart and his life. What does Jesus feel towards those? What does Jesus feel towards you and I who have fallen short in our sexual desire? How does he treat someone who falls short in his teaching? John chapter 8 tells the story of a woman caught in adultery brought before Jesus. Pharisees and those of religious standing, standing around her ready to stone her to death. And the response of Jesus, when all other people around her want to condemn, Jesus comes to her defense, actually. He dignifies her. He sees her. He protects her. And then he asks the crowd, who here is without sin, who has the right to condemn? And then, he's, then it says that one by one, they all left until Jesus is with her. And then he just gets down close to her and he offers her freedom and forgiveness. Look at you. Look around you. Who's here to condemn you? Neither do I. Go sin no more. That there's an offering of freedom and forgiveness for all people when you come into the presence of Jesus. He, he teaches us these things because he wants our lives to flourish and he sees the pitfalls that we might fall into. But he doesn't do it for the purpose that you would feel bad and feel guilt and feel shame. He does it for the purpose that you might look around and only see him offering healing and forgiveness. Saying, it's okay. Everyone else might want to throw a stone to knock you over and make you feel awful. But as for how I will treat you, I'm going to come down on your level. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to offer unconditional love because I see the image of God within you and I offer the healing and freedom that your heart actually desires. Jesus doesn't see her as an object. He sees her as an image bearer of God. Jesus doesn't look at her with lust, but with incomparable love. And for some of us this morning, we look at our past and our brokenness and we can't see anything in our future because that is all that is in our view. And here's the beauty of being in relationship with Jesus is that all things done before and in days to come where we fall short of the teachings and of the desires of the kingdom, all those moments are forgiven freely and fully before and after 
and forevermore. But they're not just forgiven so that we just move on. They're forgiven for freedom, for flourishing, for discovery. And there's healing that's available for each and every one of us. I, myself, every single day, something like pornography, something like adultery, something like sexual immorality, anything that falls in those categories, those things will just disappear. It becomes a journey that we're on. This is not a flick the switch kind of moment. This is an invitation where we begin to set the sails of our ship to catch the wind of the Spirit so that we might actually move in the direction of freedom that God is desiring us. Maybe that's what you need this morning, just to feel the wind of the Spirit wash over you so that you might know, I am an image bearer of God. I am loved unconditionally. My sin has no hold on me, and freedom is possible. This is the invitation of Jesus. This is the invitation of the kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you this space. Thank you for being with us in a, in a difficult conversation, one that really does feel like it gets into our business. And we just offer our hearts to you. Wherever there is a heaviness, I just pray for healing. Uh, wherever there is an angst or a feeling of conviction, I pray that there is no sense of condemnation, but rather just a, a moment perhaps of reflection and of self-awareness. One that begins to look at the things that we're consuming, the things that we're doing, and asking the question, is it leading us towards a place of flourishing or a place of destruction? May we just discover that all of our desire, when it is centered in you, is good. For those in the room that are, are holding on to some of the words that are said today, and, and maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's a conversation or a relationship that shouldn't be there, just thank you that uh, you meet us where we're at and that you provide wisdom. Lead us to, to still waters that restore our soul. Give us the right people and community around us so that we can be held accountable, but also find uh, a sense of vulnerability. In this journey of life, there is so much that we are broken in. But thank you that you are a good God who walks the path of healing with us. And if we need to start walking that path this morning, let it be so. Meet us where we're at. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.